Hello and welcome to the Tea Room Talks podcast, the podcast breaking the stigma. I hope this week finds you well. Now, one of the key parts of creating this podcast originally was to spread awareness and educate others around the topic of mental health. This week, we're joined with Josh, who works within education. He details his own personal struggles with generalised anxiety and how it's affected him in the past. Now, naturally, as he is in education, he's educating young people and we look into the topics surrounding mental health. The difficulties that come with dealing with young adults' mental health and monitoring, the pressures that they can be under, and how his role as a mental health lead within schools benefits teachers, parents and students. Let's take a listen to the chat that I had with Josh. So I'm joined with Josh Blunt, Senior Mental Health Lead and Teaching Professional in Cambridgeshire. Josh, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for having me. In regards to personal mental health, would you say that you've dealt with any problems in the past? Uh, Yeah, very much so. Um, I have experienced personal mental health problems since I was uh, probably my first year of secondary school, to be honest. Um, I've always been very conscious of the fact that I don't like change and I find change to um, big life events and change in uh, circumstances quite unsettling for me. It's not something that I've ever actively kind of worried about or thought about in any real detail, but it's something that I always had this kind of almost mystery illnesses at times of change in my life. Um, And it wasn't until later life that I really realised what it was. When I started secondary school, um, I I didn't enjoy it. I didn't really like it. And I suddenly had all of these kind of bizarre ailments, you know, hot flushes and racing heart rate and feeling sick and and thinking that I had stomach problems. And I was back and forth from the doctors time and time again. And um, they they just couldn't find anything the matter with me. And this was probably at a time where mental health wasn't really discussed, where anxiety wasn't something that was readily diagnosed. And looking back on it now, what it what it was 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 generalised anxiety around changing circumstances. It was my fight or flight response kicking in. Um, and I've come to learn that o- over the years. Um, but that that really is is kind of where probably my my journey to where I am now started being being at school, feeling the way that I feel gives me a lot of empathy in the role that I do now. Yeah, and I think I can certainly resonate with that when you say generalised anxiety because much like myself to the start of it, it was something that you know I didn't have a clue what on earth was going wrong with me. And then actually, as you get older, it, it can still obviously trigger that fight or flight, but actually it's strange because it's almost like uh, your mind's in two parts. Like you are going through panic stages, you know, like you said, racing heart rate, racing thoughts, sweating. But in another sense, there's another part of your brain that's like, it's fine, it's normal, I'm just very anxious. It's very interesting that even yourself, you've gone through that path and you're now at that other side, if if you see what I mean, but you still struggle. I always found it to be, it's really interesting you describe that as like two sides of your of your brain and it's, it is like they're fighting each other. Um, I had a I had a, a guest come into school to speak to our students a little while ago and she spoke about this idea. It was a lady called Natasha Devon who you, you may be aware of. She's a big mental health um, advocate and activist, especially for young people. And um, she spoke about it, it kind of being knowledge is power around what's happening to you um, and the fact that it is quite a chemical physiological response to to often what is a stressful situation um, and she came up with this nice idea of naming it and this is something that I do with students quite a lot naming that feeling that you get 
Now, she quite aptly named it Nigel after Nigel Farage because it was just sort of quite <laughs> irritating and nobody really wanted it around. Um, but I, but I, I liked that. I thought that was really good. Um, we've got a few students that have named theirs uh, suitable names as well. Identifying that within you, it, it takes away what is a big part of my background with this is the stigma of that just sort of coming clean and saying I'm feeling like Nigel you know it is like okay I know where your frame of mind is I certainly were like friends and family I'm finding with friends you can quite easily say I'm having a down day today you know and I couldn't 10 years ago certainly when I agree with you you know at school I was always a bit of a worrier but to others it isn't always shown to be like that but when you look back you're like I was definitely worried and I was definitely anxious like these um, sort of mental health problems with anxiety were always present but I always just feel like it's just there was a point where much like yourself there's always like a point where it took over my life to which I was like okay it's time to address it because I think to a degree everyone has a level of monitoring their own mental health I'm sure you'd agree with that yeah and uh, I, I feel like I mean, I don't know about you, but I, I feel like the minute that I started being probably more open, not just with myself, but with other people around it, it, it takes a weight off of your shoulders and helps to helps for you to contextualise it, I think, a little bit. So certainly I will quite frequently say to my wife, oh, I feel really ill today. And I can't always put my finger on, on what it is, but I'll go, it might just be my anxiety or it might just be, you know, that something's triggering a response within me. And having her know that, it's that kind of problem shared is a problem halved kind of thing. Having her know that, I've found helps. I don't know whether it's the same with you, that, that talking to people about how you're feeling actually does lift that weight. Yeah, I think in the early days, it was really a struggle to talk to people. But certainly with the awareness of that with friends and family, as soon as I came out and said it, it was really strange because it was it was like having an elephant in a room uh, originally and then it became the opposite where it, it because it was talked about so regularly but not in a patronizing way it was just simply are you feeling all right but if you're not it's fine we don't have to go into it you know it's not prying the answers to why you're feeling the way you are but like you said i can happily go to my um girlfriend my family if i am stressed or it's stressing me out or i'm feeling anxious or i've had a panic attack i can quite happily say that yeah, I had a panic attack this morning. Uh, you know, it was caused by this, or I'm not sure why. And there isn't that feeling that I have to explain why I had it, because obviously sometimes there isn't a root cause. And I'm sure, a bit like you said, you can be sitting there and sort of think, I'm not sure why I feel ill today, but I think it's my fight or flight. And I definitely have days like that, you know, working and been driving home in the van before where it will just sort of come on and I'm like, oh no, fight or flight. My mind is going into sort of tunnel vision. I'm panicking. But I remember I saw my girlfriend that night and this was like, I don't know, a month ago, two months. And I sort of just said, uh, I think I'm just very stressed today and I'm not sure why. But it was just around me, it was quite stressed. So I was a bit like, okay, I think it's just a down day. And there was no prying from her. There was no what's wrong with you type attitude, which I hadn't been, if I'm honest, used to in the past from like partners because of just the education of knowing what to do with that. You know, so like you say, it it is strange that, even myself, I've felt the effects of not people who don't know the awareness and the, you know, behind views of it, but then people who do and are just leave well enough alone. Because sometimes, you know, asking for help isn't always like help me find the root cause. It's just help me get over this first, you know, bout of anxiety until I can get help, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's it. It's, it's that, that idea of not being able to explain why you had it, I always found really challenging. Um, 
And I think that's why it probably took me so long to to identify what it was. And and now, even now, you know, situations that are supposed to induce anxiety episodes for me don't always. Um, And I remember starting university thinking this is going to be really terrifying for me for somebody that doesn't like change. And it didn't. I was I was absolutely fine. And I don't know whether it's because I'd mentally prepared myself for it or because I knew that it was going to be a change. But I can be doing something simple like going out for a day with my friends in London or something like that. And suddenly that induces this enormous amount of anxiety within myself. When I was younger, it was all my anyone that I spoke to, family members or even the doctor described it as nerves. And they were like, oh, maybe it's your nerves. And I always just adamantly disagreed with that because I, I was just like, well, I don't feel nervous. And I think that the language that we use around these problems sometimes can really resonate with people or have the opposite effect where it turns people away from what people are trying to communicate to you. And people go, oh, it's nerves. And I, I wasn't nervous. I wasn't nervous at all about anything, not in the traditional sense of the word. But there was a response within me that, that was kicking in to, to perhaps tell me otherwise. That's right. And I think I can. Yeah, definitely. I think. No, you said that. I can have, you know, instances where, like you say, nervous. But even with that, it's not like I'm nervous. I'm more like highly strung where I'm so confused as to why I feel anxious that that is what is upsetting me. It's not actually being anxious and what are you in a, you know, dangerous situation. It's just more mental confusion and probably fatigue where I am tired because I don't understand why I feel like this. And it's almost like a a child or, I don't know, a wound up dog where they're just so confused that the only emotion that is externally showing is upset or panic. But internally, it's actually just a lot of frustration because I just can't find the answer of why I feel a bit down, you know? And I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure you will agree with that. Going towards your role as a senior mental health lead, you know, something that I've never heard of before because obviously I'm not in education. Would you mind expanding on that and, and what the role involves and what it offers to people? Yeah, so the the role itself is a fairly new thing for a lot of schools. Um, it's something that the government would like all schools to, to have in place. Um, and so many schools are now, are now shifting towards it. For a lot of schools, it, it, it forms part of other people's jobs. So people might have a remit under which senior mental health leads sit. Um, within our school, it's, it's a designated role in itself, and that's partly because we're we're a big school. We've got close to 1,500 students on, on roll, and so our need is perhaps bigger than other secondary schools in the area. What my role involves really is I oversee a team of staff in school who are mental health practitioners to a degree. So we have a variety of fully qualified counsellors, but also teaching assistants who have qualifications within school to support students who have mental well-being needs um, we also have those that specialize in behavior that's driven by mental well-being so so mentoring staff and we also form links with the local community with parents and with external counseling services in order to basically provide the support that we need that is very much the kind of sharp end so that's our, our specialist approaches But then we also have to offer that universal approach to students within school as well. So my role within that comes down to then kind of guiding and instructing teachers, creating educational materials to basically create an environment in school where what we do every day provides a supportive environment so that students can feel secure and safe. Really, I like to describe what we do as helping people to help themselves. We're not there to pick up the pieces when things have gone wrong, although that is an element of what we do, the primary thing that we do in school is ultimately to make sure that what we're doing every day creates a place where students know where they can get support independently, 
come to school and feel safe and secure and also know that there are members of staff in school that are able to listen to them and direct them to the people that they might need to get support from. So it's a really holistic role. I work with the attendance officer in school. I work with the, the head teacher. I work with local services um, and local authority bodies like young people's workers and family support workers that work in the community to basically draw everything together to build a, to build a bigger picture. I'm also a designated safeguarding lead in school, so I have an overall responsibility for the safeguarding of children. And so that feeds very intrinsically into that role. We'll sometimes have students that, that we deal with who I see in my role as a designated safeguarding lead, who have had perhaps adverse childhood experiences that have then fed into a well-being need that they're experiencing in school. So it's very, very holistic. It's very wide-reaching. There's not many areas of the school and outside of school that I, I don't have to deal with on a daily basis, but it's hugely fulfilling, especially knowing that I've been in those situations before. In regards to that, I, th- I think that's absolutely great. I mean, you know, just hearing the description of it, I've, I'm already thinking, like, I wish that was about when I was at school, and I was only at school 10 years ago. Exactly the same for me. I, I feel exactly the same, and I feel like my experiences through school would have been much better had this been a, had this been a thing when when I was there. We had we we do open evening every year, and this year is the first time we've had a kind of designated area in school for well being for mental well being. So when we had all the parents of year six come and look around, we had a table and a big display board, and we had leaflets and flyers and um, a couple of members of staff just talking about what we offer here. A little girl came up to the table and said, uh, Dad, what's anxiety? And he, he said to his daughter, he said, oh, it's, it's something that Dad experiences, but there wasn't anything like this when I was struggling through school, and I hope that you never get it <laughs> to his little girl. And I just thought that that was so such a clear picture there of what this little girl had on offer compared to what this dad had on offer when, when times were perhaps a little bit different. Yeah, and I think with that, it also explains a, a brilliant point, which I do think is how society is changing. You know, my parents going to school wouldn't have had the support and wouldn't have had the diagnosis of these uh, instances that, you know, their parents would have dealt with. Whereas people who are, you know, people who are going to school nowadays, their parents, you know, have the diagnosis of these um, mental health troubles or illnesses. And it's sort of going to shape society because my kids and then their kids, it's, you know it's a new topic that is discussed it's no longer we're sort of in a strange way the generations who didn't ever have these diagnoses are soon going to be gone you know and I think the point I'm trying to make is that much like that little girl there her dad I'm sure with the ages will be 30s 40s and he will be that first generation who has had diagnosis and properly understood what it is to have mental illness so then she has grown up with the, there is no stigma to it, you know, because my dad's had it. And then her kids will understand that. And then their kids, you know, it, it just sort of goes in that loop. Whereas I think of my grandparents, you know, going to school, certainly no one would have ever talked about that. And even my parents going to school, you know, my grandparents would have never understood it. But my parents do. Hence why I now do. Do you think that makes sense there? Yeah, I, I completely do. And I think it's the same as any kind of medical advancement. When you look at how we used to treat you know back in years and years ago how we used to treat other ailments they'd be seen as being barbaric now yeah um, yeah definitely. And I, I think it's, it's very you know when we look at how we used to treat mental illness a lot of the ways that were, were very barbaric um 
and it's it's part of shifting medical culture but i think it is also part of society and having a, a wider appreciation of of what it is but it is it, there is still a stigma attached and there is still um a lot of i think it's fair to say that it's difficult for people to overcome that stigma if they're facing it alone if they don't have people around them that have experienced it and talked about it openly or if they don't have parents or family members who are open to that idea of of a mental illness or or even just a, a low level mental well-being problem being something that can affect you on a day-to-day basis it's really tough to be able to come forward and, and actually go do you know what this i need some help uh, and, and this this isn't how i want to be forever yeah but it's i think the thing with mental well-being is it's really difficult so to give you a good example if you look at the the government guidance in terms of how we code absences in school um the government guidance at the moment says that mental well-being ultimately should be coded and treated in exactly the same way that we treat physical absence so if a student's not off not in school because of a mental well-being purpose we should be essentially treating that in the same way that we would if a student had a, a broken leg for instance but i think the real challenge comes and the big difference comes in the way that those two things are treated because a broken leg you can't take any personal action on your own part in order to improve how quickly that broken leg is going to heal you can you can you will rely on a medical professional to put it in a cast to set it in the right way and then to monitor it and make sure ultimately that it's healed in the way that we expect but it doesn't take any effort from you you're not having to consciously think about that you're not having to consciously engage in something in order to repair that broken bone with mental well-being, both the, the beauty and the downside of it is the fact that it requires your own personal effort to be able to improve it. You, your mental health will not improve if you do nothing. And I think that that's our role as educators. That's our role in school to be able to equip students with the materials that they need, the resources that they need, the the sources of information that are from reliable sources and not just hearsay or or you know, some of the terrible materials you you come across online or from social media to be able to provide students with the kind of things that they need to actually benefit their own mental health through their own actions. Yourself being within education, where you touched on there about, you know, the way that we log it and the way that we identify it and deal with it, you know, myself coming from the construction industry, there's a, a high degree certainly of abuse and bullying and the way that mental health is treated there. And certainly when I was an apprentice is, isn't, it's, it's almost totally non-existent in my experience. However, I'm sure others may disagree, but knowing that industry, are you surprised to hear that there is such a high degree of it and such a high level of reported, you know, instances of bullying and mental health problems because of that? I think it's fair to say that sadly it doesn't surprise me. I've I've spent my fair share of days doing Saturday jobs and and the such and you know day labouring type jobs. I worked in a builders merchants for very many years through summer holidays and and Saturday mornings and you know I witnessed it on on the daily the kind of I suppose behaviour of people that would either use those businesses or people that worked for those businesses and it's the kind of behavior that certainly if I saw in my workplace you you probably wouldn't last a week before being hoiked into HR and and probably given your your P45. I would have hoped that it would have changed a little bit since you know we're talking a good 10 years since I was exposed to those industries firsthand and so I would have perhaps hoped that things had changed but I sad to say from my personal experiences I'm probably not surprised we have this, uh, you know, this 
this notion that bullying can be passed off as banter so often, I think is a dangerous thing in, in schools. We just we basically don't tolerate that as an excuse or an argument anymore. So this idea of banter, ridiculing somebody for the amusement of, of other people, we just have to have a, a hard line on that now as a school, because it's very, very difficult to to look at what is an acceptable level of banter, for want of a better word, and what isn't. Certainly with young minds and education and awareness there, you have to nip it in the bud quite early to sort of teach that lesson with that I think that's why it's interesting because someone who is sort of 15 16 leaving school can have a totally different apprenticeship where they are doing um, let's say a state agency or marketing compared to a apprentice painter or carpenter or bricklayer because four years roll down the other person can be quite professional understand life lessons but in a positive manner whereas the other one it can be quite old-fashioned like a bit like you said actually about being put pulled into hr you know small companies that don't have to have various procedures in place to be called up because they unfortunately if it's a young lad and a carpenter and all he ever does is belittle him and verbally abuse him and like you say cross the lines all the time with banter but it's actually abuse Unfortunately, the HR is the employer and there's no separate person to that. And obviously, as a young mind, you can be certainly like myself. Yes, there are these charities out there that can help you seek sort of legal action. But much like myself, when I was in that environment, 19, I, 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 what do I know about legal advice? I just thought I'll be crushed like an ant. So it's better to just get out there, which obviously is a shame to a lot of young minds or people who are just starting their career. I suppose I'll lead on to saying, in regards to education, you know, your personal opinion around mental health, what would you say is, is tougher to educate? You know, young minds that are quick to, to see humour, much like you'd say banter, and, you know, they don't know the extent of what their comments can cause. Or, on the flip side, older minds who know what effects they cause and the feelings they can cause, but sometimes are just stubborn and, and stick with their views. Um, it's a really great question. I, I think older, the older generation is, are more difficult because their beliefs are longer held and more ingrained and that they've got ingrained cultures that have developed over very, very many, many years. And often people, especially like you talk about people working in small businesses, they work within an echo chamber. They've got a community of people around them. And we see it so often, don't we, where they've got people that they might have worked with for the last 20 years that are, are yes men to what they're saying. Um, and so they agree with everything. And so everything that they say and all the opinions that they held are being validated on a daily basis. And so I think that the older generation, as a result of that, it was probably more difficult to change opinions. I think that young people are, they're like sponges, their minds. So they will absorb whatever you give them. And I think that the thing that we face, the, the difficulty at the moment is that, young minds are perhaps less critical of the information that they receive. So if they're receiving their education around mental health from social media, for instance, how reliable or how toxic is that source that they're receiving their information from? I think it's our duty to to educate young people so that they're going into the workplace and challenging the behaviour of those longer held, longer held, more ingrained beliefs of the, the older generation at the moment. Yeah, and I think I can certainly agree with you there. It's much why I sort of you know worded the question that way really because you know I've 
dealt with both sides of the spectrum really obviously being in school like everyone has and being in an apprenticeship usually with the younger uh, members it's um, often you know the the levels and the comments are almost done in an ignorant way and not in a personal attack whereas with the older minds it is done with life experience behind them but still continuing to make that comment where they know that like these comments have an effect you know someone who's 14 and uh, verbally abusing someone or perhaps there's online hate may not have dealt with the subject of someone committing suicide due to hate comments whereas someone who's in their 60s 70s let's say suicide isn't something that was just invented 10 years ago you know it's it's been present from the creation of us and you know it doesn't take a, a guy who's 60 to realize that suicide isn't just caused by someone in the right frame of mind sometimes obviously it's situational a situational cause so like you say there i think it is a difficult one you i suppose you're dealing with two minds there where one is stubborn against the change and the other as they're sponges they just don't know where to start yeah no no absolutely completely agree with that with regards to you know your role as a mental health lead and offering this service within education seeing what it does for you know the institution and the sort of role within education and helping young minds how would you feel that it would benefit others? And, uh, you know, I often use my example of construction, but obviously there is everything out there. There is so many industries that still have um, such a bad mental health monitoring system in place for HR. But how would you feel that these would be benefited from a, a job role or like a side job role like yourself? Well, I think I think first and foremost, you know, what, what you're doing at the moment, making these conversations the norm, making it increasingly transparent about how people are feeling and how their mental health might be taking a toll is really, really important because it's, it's breaking down that stigma and it's allowing people to be open. I think what in terms of what I would like to see and how, how workplaces could be better at dealing with mental health, I think it's that signposting to self-help is probably the biggest thing providing people with an outlet to speak if they need to speak. So in my role at school, I am provided with every eight weeks, I have a counselling session. And that's because of the the cognitive load that I have to take on as a member of staff. So as a, as a safeguarding lead, I have to deal with some quite often very, very sad and upsetting scenarios. But also as a well-being lead, you know, you, you touched on suicide. You know, we deal with some weighty stuff on a daily basis, suicide, self-harm and ideation around those those topics as well. And that can that can take a big toll. And I, I find that having an outlet for being able to speak about that is really important. And I, I value that heavily. And I think that that's something that I would like to see more workplaces take up especially workplaces where there is a cognitive load but perhaps not the obvious cognitive loads that that people see and to be honest I think the construction industry where it's you know for want of not simple making it too simple you know they're noisy kind of aggressive environments in in many respects very testosterone driven little opportunity to be able to have meaningful conversations given the the short breaks and different schedules and and nature of deadlines needing to be met it's hard to be able to to speak to colleagues in in a way that is private in a way that is sensitive in that environment so being able to offer something to members of staff around counseling or some sort of supervision type thing i think is is a positive as i said self-help it's one of those things where 
people need to take responsibility for making their own mental health better. You know, I know you've had your strategies. I've I've had my own strategies in terms of the things that I need to do in, to, in order to maintain my mental health. Um, and so being able to allow members of staff to explore those and to, to have the resources to direct them towards how to do those things in a way that's going to be beneficial to them is really, really important. But I, I think also in, in the building industry, I think that managers uh, and, and business owners need to be proactive on combating toxic use of language and behavior towards colleagues when they're suffering those things and i think that a hard line needs to be taken on those in the same way that we would take that hard line from a behavioral standpoint in school being an educator for young minds just because you're a building site manager with perhaps older people than yourself or younger you can view yourself as the educator as well i'm sure because i think from what you've described there the takeaway from that is if you are the person in in charge of these people you can be the not necessarily the enforcer but more the instructor towards education and awareness that if you're trying to educate those people on your building site about having improved mental well-being and looking out for your colleagues the buck can stop with you you know it doesn't have to get taken any further so you know i'm sure you can relate to that in that way being an educator for for kids you know you can be an educator for adults it's it's not an impossible role and it's not an impossible thought for those out there who are responsible or working in hr or you know building site managers if this is the subject they believe in doesn't mean that because someone's older than you that you can't educate them i'm sure you know you will agree with that yeah, no, com- completely. And, and look, looking out for your staff and colleagues, I think, is one of the most powerful things you can do. We encourage students to look out for other students um, and being sometimes being a voice for somebody is easier than that person giving their voice for themselves. If somebody else has noticed the, the signs and symptoms and they're able to say, are you all right? But really ask, are you are you really all right? Not just wait for that stock response that's, yeah, not bad. How are you? but really wait for or, or ask a second or a third time to get that honest response from somebody to really dig down to how they're feeling. You know, being an advocate for somebody else's mental health is, is such a powerful skill that we can really easily teach people. Yeah, and I think, like you say, it's it all comes down to being responsible and looking out for others, not just your own mental well-being, but I'm sure, yeah, it must feel great being responsible and looking out for others there because you are doing such a you know thought provoking and thoughtful role there and and such an important role I think in the the way that we think about mental health so with your views and perceptions on young people and certainly with your job role being responsible for monitoring levels of mental health certainly when I was an apprentice you know I was sort of told if you think you've got worries now wait until you're older you know what you're dealing with now isn't real life problems and obviously at the time I was actually suffering with mental health problems what's your view of that you know certain people will disagree and say that young people cannot suffer from mental health problems quite frankly that I think that's a nonsense um thank god (laughs) yeah (laughs) Um, yeah, it's not your 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 whole diagnosis is not fiction. You'll be pleased to hear. Uh, <laughs> but um, I do think that young minds are, are still developing and they're still fragile, and I think that makes them more vulnerable to lower level mental health problems. And I think if that goes unchecked and is allowed to develop over a period of time, they can develop into quite serious mental health problems. 
I think the thing with young minds is that often they lack the understanding and experience to respond to life challenges. And this is where the notion of resilience comes into things. So a big part of what we do in school is about building resilience. And actually, one of the biggest things that can support that is exposing students to situations that induces anxiety, but doing so in a way that they can reflect on it, that they can look at how they can change that in, in the future. So like exams are a really great example of that. So we have a number of students who have never been in a particularly stressful situation in their life. They enter into a period of time where they're being intensively tested for a number of hours over a number of weeks. And as a result, it, it tends to induce an enormous amount of stress in, in some students. But by by exposing them to that early on and doing it in a repetitive way, but also through through mock exams and things like that, but then also picking up students who maybe are struggling through it and offering them techniques and ways that they can actually manage those symptoms to be able to continue to live a healthy and normal life through normal challenges that life presents is a really important skill that we have to develop within children and, and young people to make sure that they can manage for themselves those experiences. So I think it's probably fair to say that if you've got young people who have never experienced traumatic or stressful situations through their life, they're probably more more likely to experience what they might think is a, a mental well-being disorder or illness or, or whatever label you want to put on it. Sometimes it's not necessarily a mental well-being disorder. It's a, a normal anxiety, which we need to be careful that we're not we're not clubbing together. That's not to say that young people can't experience sustained and, and long term mental health issues. We do see it and we do see it very commonly. Resilience is always going to be something that you're going to want to build. And certainly it's something that I've built within myself through different coping mechanisms and, and strategies in order to continue going going about and doing what you want to do. I think that having that belief that that supporting your own mental health is something that you have to actively engage in, you have to improve, you have to exercise in the same way that if you want to continue with your physical health being in, in peak condition, you have to exercise, you have to practice it, you have to nurture it. I think that's really, really important. What I would hope to see is that people who develop those skills at a young age are less likely to develop those develop those mental well-being problems at an old age through building patterns of resilience um and and mindfulness around how they're feeling at a stage um so yeah i think it's, it's nonsense nonsense to suggest that young people can't suffer with mental health problems i think that's uh, i think that's just not true with um what you said about almost creating that safe environment safe space it sounds to exercise these feelings of anxiety is is perfectly normal because it is something that we deal quite a lot with in, in life, anxiety and the feeling of fear or pressure because, you know, you get out into the working world. We all work to deadlines, no matter what industry you're in, you work to a deadline, you work to a certain standard. We all deal with um, time constraints. We all obviously have time management um, and obviously we all deal with um, personalities at work, good and bad, that is sort of being with a professional manner. So much like you said there it's a good example you know uh, and it's fantastic to view that from a teaching perspective of exams they are a great way to channel train yourself almost for the later life where you're going to have to get used to being quite regulated in the working world and and coming to terms with well you're very nervous for this exam but channel it use it to your advantage yeah and I, I like that idea of harnessing it you know anxiety in, in good measure can be used for such a powerful um force it does it does allow you 
you know, it is your natural, it's your natural response to a stressful situation. It does allow you to operate at a slightly higher level than perhaps your your non-anxious state would allow for. And we we really try and reinforce that to students. A bit of anxiety going into an exam is a normal human response. Um, but it's when that that becomes prolonged uh, that that we need to make sure that students understand the difference between that normal anxiety that they would experience going into exam, as anyone would. You know, I think if you're going into exam or a driving test or whatever it is, and you're not a little bit anxious about that, you know, there's there's something a little bit wrong there. Having that anxiety or that worry, I've always taken that for for much like you said, a driving test, an exam. I think it shows that you care. You know, you're, you you care about the outcome because, you know, you can be confident in yourself but still anxious. I, I just think it is yourself proving that you care of the outcome. Completely agree. Completely agree. And I, I think that we see that we see that in school. You know, it's your high attaining students that tend to be the ones that suffer from exam anxiety most highly. So certainly in our in our environment in school, I can look down a list of students and quite commonly it will be the students that are high attaining, hardworking, very, very driven to, to, you know, with their sights set on the best six form colleges and universities. They are also the ones that fall into the category of, of most likely to experience exam anxiety. And it's because of partly because of the pressures they place on themselves, but also because they care about it so much that they see it very much as a make or break situation, which can further induce that anxiety that they otherwise would have already been experiencing. Like you say, it's a, sometimes a positive thing, certainly with dealing with young people, it does show that they're quite active and quite conscientious of, of their own beliefs there. So no, I think this has been a really interesting chat here, Josh. And I think it certainly showed me another side to the education that, you know is involved with younger minds and spreading that awareness of mental health and you know I think the the job role that you do is absolutely fantastic so you know I'd really like to thank you for you know coming to join me and, and chat with me today it's been really good to talk about these subjects thank you very much it's been an absolute pleasure and um, I look forward to listening to a few more of these myself because I'm, I'm hoping that they're going to inform uh, some bits and pieces that we do in school lovely excellent thank you very much So the chat that I had with Josh there, it's good to see another perspective on the side of education. You know, I certainly think it's a hard industry, that's for sure. In general, a lot of pressures, keeping students safe, ensuring that they get good and well-informed education, ensuring that deadlines are met, along with, you know, the admin side as well, of being up to date with standards, practices and training. It certainly can be a stressful industry within education as a mentor, teacher or TA let alone monitoring students' mental health. In regards to the services available, access links to the Young Minds Charity, Anna Freud National Centre and Schools Advisory Service. These links will be available in the episode description and they have great resources for helping care for young adults as well as yourselves. Something important to all of us if you have a younger member or family to look after. As always, get in touch on our socials and email if you'd like to contact the podcast or feature. And thank you once again for listening. I look forward to next week.